In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My dear sisters and brothers, in that triune God, whoever wishes to be saved must have this conviction of the Trinity. That's what we just confessed. In fact, that's what maybe the majority of Christians around the world are confessing this morning and have been on this Sunday for hundreds of years. Whoever wishes to be saved must have this conviction of the Trinity. So, seems like a pretty good time to ask the question, is this your conviction of the Trinity? And not just for you and for your faith. It's too easy to say something like, well, yeah, that's what I believe, and, and that's how I'm saved, but, you know, I don't, I don't know about everybody else. No, that to have this conviction regarding the triune God is the only way that anyone is saved. How about that? seems pretty exclusive, rigid, maybe even narrow-minded, we would say. We much prefer to have options, don't we? We want wiggle room, and we want exceptions. But the Athanasian Creed, I don't know if you got this by the end of it, it doesn't give you any wiggle room. It doesn't give you any exceptions. It makes it sound like we're the only ones who are right about this whole God thing. And that's sort of an uncomfortable position to take. Like, we're the ones on the right team. We're the ones who picked the right religion. We're the ones who picked the right church. The irony is, of, of course, we... We don't normally have really a problem, do we, when it comes to telling other people that we are right about pretty much everything else. Our financial opinions or our political opinions. We got no problem telling people we're on that right team. But this? Whoever wishes to be saved must have this conviction of the Trinity. Maybe it's difficult to say that because how do you have a conviction about something you can't comprehend? You don't fully understand the Trinity, neither do I, that we have a God who is three divine, distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. How do you have that conviction? Worse, how do you hold someone else to a conviction that you yourself cannot comprehend? Today can be a confusing day, this Holy Trinity Sunday, and, and maybe even move beyond confusing into frustrating. 
but it shouldn't be. It doesn't need to be. Because here's what you need to take from today. It matters that you have a triune God. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity isn't just some abstract idea about an incomprehensible God. It actually confesses how it is that God, three persons, one God, how does that God exist? But that's not all. In our first reading from Genesis chapter 1, we heard this triune God say, let us make mankind in our image. You were made in the image of a God who is triune. That matters. And in our gospel reading, we heard Jesus say, you have been baptized into the name of a God who is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That matters. You see, if you think of the doctrine of the Trinity as simply being an abstract attempt to explain something that is beyond your comprehension, one plus one plus one equals one, if that's all the Trinity is to you, then a day like today will not mean anything to you. And it will sound nothing more than the height of arrogance to confess something like, whoever wishes to be saved must have this conviction of the Trinity. But if you understand that the doctrine of the Trinity is not just an explanation as to how a triune God exists, but it is also the explanation as to how you exist. Having been made in the image of and baptized into the name of the triune God, then today means everything. And, and confessions of faith like the Athanasian Creed are not only true, but they're a source of immeasurable comfort. So what I want to actually do today is, is I actually want to go through briefly each of the three scripture readings, parts of them anyway, that help us to understand and see our triune God at work and what implications that has for us as Christians. Think back to our first reading from Genesis chapter 1, the account of creation. Whenever I read through that with someone or we teach it in our Bible information class, you can imagine, you've probably had them, there's an endless amount of questions that come from those first two chapters in Genesis. But for me, I think the most intriguing one is the shortest question. And that is just to simply ask, why? Why does God create mankind at all? And the answer that most people will give, Christians included, is something like this. Well, God created mankind because he wanted someone or something to love him. He wanted something or someone to serve him. Or, to make God sound less narcissistic and, and more compassionate, 
God created mankind because he needed something or someone to love. In other words, God was God created mankind because he was seeking his own happiness. He was seeking something that would fulfill him. God was kind of lonely in eternity by himself. And he wanted something to love. He wanted a pet to keep him company, to bring him joy, because without it he had none. And you see, those answers would be possible if God were unipersonal. And what I mean by that is, love requires an object. It just does. As much as you might want to think of yourself as just being a loving person by nature, love has to have an object. You don't just love nothing. You have to love something. So when we talk about this unipersonal idea, if God is unipersonal, then he would naturally need an object. He would need a creation. He would need humanity in order to love and in order to be loved. But your God is not unipersonal. He is triune. He's three persons in one God, which means he was always showing and receiving love. The three persons of the Trinity have loved and adored and served one another from before eternity. God was showing and receiving perfect love long before he ever uttered the words, let there be. This is why John can say of God in his first epistle, God is love. Love is part of his eternal essence because it has always been something he gave and always been something he received. All right, then why? Why does God create mankind? Well, it's not so that he could finally experience happiness and love. He created mankind so that he could take the perfect love and happiness which he had known for all of eternity and pour it into the lives of another. He created mankind because he was seeking the happiness of others. And he does this because the triune God has always known what you and I so mightily struggle to learn. And that's this. That true happiness is found not in raising yourself up, but happiness is found in bending down beneath others and lifting them up. I mean, isn't that one of the rare truisms in this life? That if you want to be happy, then don't seek your own happiness. Or stated negatively, if you want to guarantee that you will be unhappy for the rest of your life, then just spend the rest of your life trying to be happy. However, if you seek 
to find and you seek to instill and create and support the happiness of others, well, then you might just end up finding both. To simplify this, if you're still trying to wrap your head around it, your life is more about others than it is about you. Think about how this works within the Trinity. God so loved, God the Father, so loved the world that he gave it his only begotten Son. And what is Jesus constantly saying throughout his earthly ministry? He doesn't say things like, I've come to do whatever I think is best. I've come to do what I want. I've come to do whatever I think is going to make me happy. No, Jesus repeatedly, you can hardly turn a page in the Gospels without hearing Jesus say something like, I have come to do the work of my Father. I have come to do the will of the one who has sent me. And what was that work? What was that will? It was to suffer and to die and to rise again to forgive the world's sins. And Jesus does it all willingly, gladly. Not my will, but your will be done, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Father, the Father delights in his Son as any father would with a son like Jesus he delights in his son. Twice we hear Jesus, or God the Father say this, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The love and admiration and service and care that they give to one another. And then when Jesus' work is done and he ascends back into heaven and is seated at the right hand of his Father, what do they do? Well, they send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, we just heard about this last week on Pentecost. The wind, the flames of fire, the speaking in tongues, all signs that the Holy Spirit was present. And yet go back and read. We just heard the first 21 verses last week, but go back and read all of Acts chapter 2 and listen to the rest of Peter's great Pentecost Day sermon. And do you know what? In all of those verses, in this amazing sermon that Peter gives he never once mentions the flames of fire or the wind or the speaking in languages. No, well, do you know what his entire sermon is about? Jesus. The sermon was about the work of Jesus who was sent by the Father to save the world. You see, the Spirit's great delight is to reveal and point people, not to himself, but to Jesus. And why Jesus? Well, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because no one comes to the Father except through the Son. This is how the Trinity exists. This perfect unity and service to each other. And because you have been created in the image of God, a triune God, 
whose very existence shows that he lives to love and serve others, that he is always seeking the happiness of others, this is how you are to exist. So do you? Do you put humble sacrifice ahead of accomplishment? Service ahead of self? Do you put others' happiness ahead of your own? Are you of one mind and do you live in peace with one another? Do you see it as your divine calling to not just be fellow church members or acquaintances with one another, but to actually know one another? to know these families and these individuals, to know their joys and their struggles, and to help them carry whatever burdens it, it is that they're facing. In other words, is this perfect service and love and unity of the Trinity, is that the blueprint for your life? And if you hear all of that and you say, oh, pastor, give me a break. That just sounds like a whole lot of lovey-dovey kumbaya stuff. I get it, but it isn't. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. And if you have an issue with this, the problem is not that you just can't comprehend a three-in-one God. The problem is you look nothing like Him. Brothers and sisters, repent. And then look to your triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and see in Him a God who loves you. A God who, despite you losing His image, loves to serve you loves to serve you with forgiveness. You know, the two most clear depictions and communications of the Trinity in Scripture have something very important and very beautiful in common. They both center around holy baptism. Think about it. The first one is the baptism of Jesus. Jesus goes out to the Jordan River and there his cousin John is baptizing people and Jesus says, hey, can you baptize me? And John says, not a chance. Jesus says, actually, it wasn't a question. Baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. And John does. And as Jesus is coming up out of the Jordan River, there the Holy Spirit descends down on him in the form of a dove and there the Father speaks. And we see distinctly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as plain as day. The second is here in Matthew 28, the gospel reading we heard, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, one God, one name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now imagine for a moment that you were one of those 11 gathered with Jesus on that mountain. Jesus died and has risen from the dead. Jesus is back and things are better than ever. 
And then Jesus has another one of those mountaintop moments with his disciples, and he starts it with this. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. What do you think he's going to say next? Oh man, your mind must have been racing of all of the possibilities, the people that Jesus was going to punish, the wrongs that Jesus was going to right, how he was going to distribute and elevate and, and give that power and authority piece by piece to his disciples. But that ain't anything close to what he said. No. I'm intrigued to think about another thing here, and that is how would you finish that statement? What would you do if you had been given all authority in heaven and on earth? End poverty and racism, and homelessness. Maybe make some pretty big political changes that might kind of serve your needs a little better. Wipe out hunger and disease. Fix your broken home. Here's what Jesus does with all power and authority. He sends out his church. People like you. And he says, give the world us. Give them me. Pour out my name. Put my name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on people. Tell them that the Father is delighted to call you his sons and daughters too. Tell them that he has adopted you into his eternal family and everlasting life will one day be your inheritance. Tell them that I, Jesus, am delighted to call them my brothers and my sisters, that my righteous, sinless, perfect life is your clothing from now on that my precious blood has washed you clean and forgiven your every last sin. That I have defeated death. And there is nothing more to fear. Tell them that the Holy Spirit is delighted to call your bodies His holy temple, His dwelling place forever, that He has sanctified you and declares you to be holy and blameless in the sight of God, tell them that He has fellowship with you, that He has made Himself one with you and will guide you in all truth until He carries you home. And we say, Jesus, that is a terrible way to use all of your authority. To entrust that kind of power and authority to people like us? What if we screw it up? What if we get it wrong? What if we forget something? What if we are afraid? But you see, part of the beauty of it is its simplicity. How do we communicate all of this to someone? How do we give the triune God and all of his blessings to another. Baptizing. Through baptism, these 
These are all yours. And then Jesus says, you take that one that you have baptized and then you teach them what we have given them. Teach the baptized to treasure all of these things, every word that Jesus speaks, every promise that he makes, that your God is triune. Your God lives to love and serve you with himself. And when you start to believe that, when you start to have that conviction, when you start to see the beauty and comfort of your triune God, instead of getting lost in the mystery of how does three and one work, well, then a prayer like the one Paul shared in the final verse of our second scripture reading becomes everything to you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What else is there? You are forgiven. You are loved. You are one with the triune God himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whoever wishes to be saved must have this conviction of the Trinity. You know why that statement is true? It's not talking so much about the individual trying to convince or to convict them of some existential truth. It's not trying to get them on the right team or in the right church. Whoever wishes to be saved must have this conviction of the Trinity is true because he is the only God who can. And he has. He has saved you. Creator, Redeemer, Sanctifier, that's who your triune God is and created, and redeemed, and sanctified is who He has made you to be. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.